Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and I wanted to continue on in our Passover Passion series as we look at Passover Passion, the reason for the season. And today we're going to be in Lesson 8, and the title is Plottings and Pourings. And I want to look at a couple of things. Uh, we're going to contrast plotting and pouring. We're going to contrast two different uh, people or groups of people, in, individuals. And we want to see these things occurring somewhat, in essence, simultaneously. And let's see what the contrast can show us as we look at these things in light of the Passover season, the Passover week. We have looked at already how Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, rode in on the donkey on the 10th of Nisan as the king, recognized by the people as the king at that time, that he is the Passover lamb. God chose his Passover lamb on the 10th of Nisan on its very day. We saw in the last couple of uh, lessons, few lessons about some of the things that are happening throughout the week in between when he rode in to Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan and when he will be offered as the Passover lamb on the 14th of Nisan. We saw how that it all fits the biblical pattern, even from the Passover in Exodus, and how they were to keep the lamb and inspect the lamb because before the lamb could be sacrificed, it must be perfect without blemish or spot of any kind. And so we're seeing how Jesus is meeting all of the Old Testament demands, everything that the Old Testament prophesied about or uh, required is being fulfilled, and that's what we're looking at in this series. So tonight I want to consider plottings and pourings. Now, there were two kinds of people in that day, just as there are today. There are the groups of people that reject Jesus, want nothing to do with him at all, and they refuse to accept him as Messiah, as Yeshua, as the Savior and their Lord. And then there are those that are receiving him and worshiping him. Now, at the current time, there may be some that are sort of in the middle because they haven't believed in Jesus yet, but they're not of the camp that is rejecting him. I encourage you, if you happen to be in that, believe in Jesus, receive him, and see him as the promised lamb. Because in coming days that will yet come, when we all meet our maker and have to stand before the Lord, at that time, there will only be two, and you will either by that time have received him and then received the blessing of that, or you will have rejected him and you will receive the condemnation that comes with that. And there's only two destinations that you can spend eternity in. We've talked about this in many other ways and in many other lessons. But it's very, very important that we make that decision now, in this life, while we have the opportunity, it must be done. So, we see two different people, two different groups of people, two different individuals, 
um, involved here, and we're going to contrast those. There were those that were rejecting Yeshua the Messiah, and they were in the camp that was plotting. Actually, this rejection of Jesus by some started when he was first born, or as young as, uh, you know, year, two years old, when the Magi came. And they came to Herod seeking the new king that had been born. Well, Herod obviously was enraged. He saw this as a threat to his power, to his succession, and he would have none of that. He wouldn't, he was known to even kill his, his own sons um, if he thought that they, or feared that they would threaten his throne. So he had all the babies killed that were two years old and under in the town of Bethlehem. Then we see early in Jesus' ministry, more people rejecting him. As a matter of fact, let's read some of this. The story is found, or the account is found in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16 and continuing on through verse 30. I'm going to read portions of that. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book or the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, and then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61, the first few verses. Then he closed the book, verse 20, gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of those who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Now this was his hometown. The Bible says he came to his own, and his own received him not. So he started in his hometown. He started among his family, and he went back to Nazareth. Well, they saw him as, you know, Joseph and Mary's little boy, and that's all they saw him as. They could not stretch to see him as the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied as to the Messiah. And so they rejected him. As a matter of fact, they rejected him so much, he talked to him for a while, and then it says in verse 28, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Now they were wanting to kill him right then and there. And of course, it wasn't the time so Jesus escaped from among them. He, was, he did come to die, but he came to die a certain time and a certain way, and he had to fulfill that. So he was, uh, he was not going to allow anyone to preempt that, and he was rescued. He, he received um, just that freedom to walk through them, and they, he, he was able to escape from that. Uh, because it wasn't God's timing and it wasn't God's way. He was not to be thrown over a cliff. He was to be sacrificed on the cruel cross because he was the Passover lamb who had to die on the 14th of Nisan. 
So these were his hometown folks, and they rejected him. Then we see even other places throughout his ministry that rejection keep, kept growing throughout the ministry. It got ramped up at the time of the resurrection of Lazarus. I want to turn right now over to the book of John. And in John chapter 11 is where we read the story of Lazarus. Lazarus has, had died. Uh, he, well, he was very sick at first. His sisters sent word to Jesus and said, you know, the one that you love, Lazarus, your dear friend, is sick and we need you to come. And so the Bible says that Jesus waited two more days and then he said, okay, it's time to go now because Lazarus sleeps. And the disciples said, well, if he sleep, he'll get better. And he said, no, you don't understand. He's dead. We've got to go and, and see about this. So they went on and Martha and Mary met him and they were both upset um, because he hadn't come in time. And they said, if you had already, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Well, they didn't understand that God had a greater purpose because Lazarus actually was going to be a symbolic representation of Jesus and what Jesus was about to experience and be resurrected. And also perhaps even prophetically forming a pattern for our own resurrection in, in the end times as well. But Jesus was going to do a greater miracle. Well, Martha and Mary, they had seen Jesus' miracles over, over this time that they had spent with him and be, befriended him and all of that. So they knew that he could heal. They, it was a stretch for them to understand that he could not only heal, but he could also raise the dead and give life to the dead. Now you have to understand, at this time, Lazarus had been dead for four days. That's important because in the Jewish custom, they believe that, that after the third day is when the body really begins to start to decay. And so if someone has been dead for the four days and they're verified that they are dead, then the typical Jewish response is they'll seal the tomb and they won't go back for another year. And that allows all of the flesh and, and all of that to dissolve and to decay away. And they're left with just the bones. And then at the end of the year, they'll go and collect the bones and put them into an ossuary. So Jesus doing this had proven to them that it was at a point where decay was setting in. Matter of fact, Martha even mentions that because she said when he told them to roll the stone away, she says, Lord, he stinks, you know, because he's already starting to decay. She said, are you sure you want to do that? And she couldn't seem to grasp that Jesus was going to do the greater miracle of actually giving life back to this dead man. And uh, so let Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now we find after that happens, let's pick up the story in John chapter 11, verse 45. And people heard about it. Of course, this would have been the talk of the town. And so some of the plotting again against Jesus begins to pick up after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So let's find out what John tells us about that. Verse 45 of John 11, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. 
But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. They were concerned about losing their privilege, losing their place of honor and their position over the people and all of that. It was a very vain, selfish thing. And then we see in the next few verses where one of them, Caiaphas, the high priest at that time, speaks to them and he literally prophesies about Jesus dying, the one for the entire nation. He, he may or may not have realized he was speaking prophetically, but because he was in the office of the high priest, his words actually were a prophecy given from the Lord. Then it says in verse 53, Then from that day on they plotted to put him to death. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priest and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So we see that this is ramping up. I mean, they are, they are beyond enraged now. They are violently seeking to, to kill him. We will find out that they wanted to do it later because they feared the people. So they were hoping to get through the Passover season and send everybody back home so there wouldn't be all these, you know, millions of people in Jerusalem to, to see this and to witness it. They were scared they'd be in uproar because everybody loved Jesus and um, the common people did. And so, you know, they wanted to delay it. Well, God takes care of that situation also, as we will see. But now we come to the first pouring. We're looking at, remember, plotting versus pouring. The first pouring was done the night before the 10th of Nisan, or the day before the 10th of Nisan on that evening. Um, on the 10th is when he will ride into Jerusalem on the donkey, be proclaimed and recognized as Messiah the King with the Messianic cry from Psalm 118. And we looked at that a few days ago. But what I want to focus on now is the pouring, the anointing of him that happens the night before that or the day before that. It says in John chapter 12, verse 1, Then six days before the Passover, or the night before he would ride in on the, the donkey, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, 
Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That was almost a year's worth of wages for these people. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now, this is what the first pouring that I want to talk about. Let me go on and read the, the next couple of verses as well. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So now the plotting has ramped up to the point that even during this, this pouring that, that Mary did, and because of that, now they not only want to kill Jesus, they want to kill Lazarus, because Lazarus was a testimony to Jesus. Lazarus was another one that was in the way and, and now has a bullseye on his back, so to speak. So this is how far this ramps up. Now, in this first pouring that happens, we are told when it happens and we are told who does it. We will read another account of another pouring that we are not told who does it. We are told when it happens, and that is why we know it's not the same. This first pouring happened the day before, the night before he was riding in to Jerusalem on the donkey. Now, it's interesting because when he rode in on the donkey, he was fulfilling Zechariah 9's prophecy. He was declared to be the king, Messiah the king, and they, the people even recognized that, many of them, because they cried out the messianic cry from Psalm 118. And he was God's chosen pet lamb on that day. God was making clear that he was chosen as the Passover lamb. However, there is one other element to this ride that I want to point out. And I will direct you if you would like. I did last year during Holy Week, I did a series of special services then as well. And in that one, I did a Holy Week um, sermon on the Ride and the Rocks, and that was the title of it. You may want to go and look that up, and I went into much more detail. However, here tonight, I just want to, I want you to notice something, that Jesus makes clear that, that Mary, in this anointing, has anointed for the day of his burial. Notice this also, though, that from the pattern in the Old Testament, there's two places in the Old Testament that connect with this ride of Jesus into Jerusalem as king and the recognition of him as king. One is found in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 1, verse 38 through 40, and the second is found in 2 Kings, chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, and then 11 through 13. I want it, well, actually, it's from 1 through 13, but I'm not going to read the whole passage today. I want to first go to 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 38 through 40, and I want you to see this. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah, the son of 
Jehoiada, the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and took him to Gihon. Then Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the horn, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, and the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. So we see this anointing and riding the mule and going to Gihon and riding into Jerusalem and being recognized by the people as king is a correlation to this triumphal entry of Jesus when he rode in on the donkey. We also see a very similar thing in 2 Kings chapter 9. And I just want to read the first few verses and then a couple of other verses instead of reading the whole story. But the whole story is from verse 1 through 13. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 1, And Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready, take this flask of oil in your hand, and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not delay. So we see Elisha, uh, the servant, goes and does that. Then it says in verse 11, after, um, after the servant has done this, Then Jehu came out to the servants of his master, and one said to him, Is all well? Why did this madman come to you? And he said to them, You know the man and his babble. And they said, Ha lie, tell us now. In other words, you're kidding. We, we want to know the truth. Don't, don't kid with us. So he said, Thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps, and they blew trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. So here again, we see another Old Testament pattern that connects us with Jesus' ride into Jerusalem on the donkey. In both cases, there was anointing involved and a declaration of them as king. So in this first pouring from Mary, then in essence, she is also participating through, through God's direction out of her heart of love for the Lord in an anointing for him as he will officially ride in as king of Israel and be recognized by the people on that day as Israel's king. Now, the plottings, however, are continuing. And remember, we saw that they're simultaneously occurring and even growing in intensity. So they've now plotted against Jesus and Lazarus. Okay, Now we've had the triumphal entry that occurs according to John chapter 12, verse 19. I want to read this to you and see what, they, what, what this says as well. Jesus has ridden in on the donkey 
as the king, recognized with the messianic cry. The people are crying out. Pharisees get all upset about that, and we'll see that in a moment. Look at John chapter 12, verse 19, and it says this, The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So they are responding. We're seeing their response to Jesus riding in on the donkey. If we look at Luke's account, in Luke chapter 19, verse 37 through 40, it says this, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, make them shut up. That's a messianic cry. We don't want to hear it. Make them shut up. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So the Pharisees are trying to shut them up. We saw in the earlier lessons how this continues on through the week. So, for instance, in Luke 19, go on down a few verses to 47 and 48, because this is Luke recording this about the, the rest of the week and the other days when he's in the temple and so forth. And it says this, And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So they're still trying to kill him. Now the climax is still to come of this, but I do want to see, I want you to see another couple of places here in Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, Let's read verses 1 through 5. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, Mark records this as well. And in Mark it says, after two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. So now we've got the setting. We've seen how the plottings have continued and have ramped up in intensity and in fervor. They are really hot under the collar. They cannot stand that he is being recognized by the people as Messiah the King. They are seeing him as some regal threat to them, and they just don't want to lose their power. They are rejecting him. They won't have anything to do with him. And they are looking to kill him. But I want us to consider the contrast between these 
these people, this group of people, and the first and second pouring of anointing to Jesus. There was a first one. We talked about that a moment ago. That's recorded in John 12, and we know it's a different one because it said that that one was done six days before Passover, and we are told it was done by Mary, Lazarus's brother, uh, Lazarus's sister. Excuse me. This second one happens at a different time, and we are told the exact place this hap- this happens, but we are not told who does it. Let's look at it in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, so apparently this was probably one of the lepers that Jesus had healed during the course of his ministry. We know that he healed several, and this was obviously one of them because he's having a supper at his house with a bunch of people there. If he were still leprous, he couldn't have done that. He would have still been, you know, outside the camp, quarantined away from everybody, contagious, couldn't have had anything to do with anybody. So we know that by this time, this obviously appears to be one of those among the lepers that Jesus has healed at some point in his ministry. So it says, being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? Note that word, wasted. For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them. You may do good to them. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Now notice this, the response of one in the crowd. At this time, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. So now we see the plottings coming to their climax here, and we will talk more about that later. Let's read Matthew's account of this same pouring this same account, and we will see the similarities and why we know that this is not the same one that Mary did at um, the feast that they had given in honor of Lazarus being raised from the dead. In Matthew 26, verse 6, And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, 
She did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then notice this. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. So here we're contrasting these people that are plotting versus these people that are pouring, these ladies that have poured on Jesus. Now, we don't know in Matthew and Mark's account two days before the Passover if it was the same Mary that had poured six days before Passover. We don't know that. We're not told. The woman is unnamed in this account, the ones that are recorded in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14. So we're not sure. But the thing that I want to really point out to you is the contrast and we've narrowed it down now, even though the Jews, the leaders are plotting against him, now we see that one emerges that is going to basically hit the nail in the coffin, the one that's going to bring it to its climax, and that's Judas Iscariot, versus the woman who has poured out the oil out of a heart of love. And I want you to see these two things. This is what I really want to leave you with as we draw to a close. Waste or worth? The answer to that lies in who was, who was involved, the heart of the person. We saw Judas's chariot in the response that he had saying, why this waste? Why was this wasted? Jesus wasn't worth very much to him. Matter of fact, now he had turned against Jesus. Jesus had chosen him one time before, and Jesus knew all along how this whole thing was going to play out. He knew all along that Judas would be the one to betray him. And Judas, very likely, history seems to indicate, was a zealot. So Judas was looking for the political savior, the one who was going to be militant, who was going to come in in power and bring in the kingdom and was going to overthrow the Romans and deliver them from the Roman oppression. And what the Jews and the people that were looking for that particular Savior didn't realize is that Jesus came the first time to deliver them from a far greater oppressor, a far greater enemy than just the Romans. Jesus came to set them free from the power of Satan through the power of sin in their lives. He came to save them from their sins and from the eternal doom and condemnation that that brought upon them. The Bible says in John 3, in, cha in John chapter 3, verse 16, we know that one very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But if you go on down, you will see that it says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world was condemned already. In other words, we, because of sin, and we are sinners, all of us, we stand condemned, period, before a holy God already. We are guilty as charged and we stand guilty 
before a holy God in the court of heaven, so to speak. So Jesus didn't come to make it worse. He didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. He came to allow us that rescue from those sins and from that verdict that condemnation to eternal hell will bring. And rather, he came so that we could then have a verdict of eternal life and the impartation of the righteousness of God being imputed to us when we believe on Jesus Christ, being made brand new, new creations, being saved by faith through the grace of God. Hallelujah. Praise God. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to rescue us from that. But in, the, in that day, many of them, including Judas, were looking for a zealot. They were looking for a mighty man of war to come in and overthrow the Romans. And so as Jesus kept talking all this time about being poor in spirit, being servant of all, being tender, having compassion, blessing those that persecute you, I mean, all of these different things that Judas is walking around with him and hearing him say, etc. And, you know, Judas is beginning to think, have second thoughts and like, man, this ain't who I thought he was. Uh, he's not the he's not going to overthrow the Romans like I thought he was. And then he comes riding in on a, a donkey instead of a horse, you know, and, and Judas is going, hmm, is this who I thought he was? And so it kind of builds and builds and builds. And by the time we get to this point here, Judas has had enough. And he's like, okay, that's it. Why this waste? You know, this is ridiculous. He's not worth that to me. It was a waste. However, this woman saw him as worth almost an entire year's salary is what that cost in that day. Even we, we read it, 300 denarii is what they were thinking that they could estimate the sale of it being. And a denarii was a day's wage. So we're talking about nearly a year's worth of wage and salary earnings for this woman. And yet Jesus was worth it to her because of how she saw him. Judas saw him and saw him totally differently than this woman did. And this woman said, Jesus, you're worth my livelihood. You're worth everything I can offer. You're worth the very best that I could possibly give you. You're worth the most expensive thing that I can do because of what you've done for me. And so we see the contrast being, is it waste or is it worth? How do you see him? Are you one who rejects him and thinks of it as being a waste? He's a waste. He's not worth your time. He's not worth your talent. He's not worth your treasures. He's not worth giving him your life and yourself. Or is he worth everything to you? I pray it's the latter. I pray that you see Jesus as being worth it all because he truly is. And his sacrifice as the Passover lamb is beautiful. He made sure that he died as the Passover lamb on Passover day, God's perfect timing, because he wanted to redeem you and I. He thought we were worth it for him to make it all the way to the cross. He carried forward because he loved us that much.
And this woman is showing a return love, a mutual love back to him and appreciation because she counted him worthy of everything and the very best that she could possibly offer. I pray that you and I will do the same and that in this season, we will remember his worth and give him the honor that he is due. We will continue our Passover Passion sessions in the next episode as well. And I pray that you will stay with us and join us again for future episodes of this. I pray this has been a blessing to you. Lord bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.